During this episode of Unbeatable, I get a chance to sit down and reconnect with somebody that I consider a friend and an inspiration. On this episode of Unbeatable, I get a chance to talk to Congressman Barry Loudermilk, who is from the U.S. state of Georgia and now serving in the United States Congress. And he's going to tell you about the incredible, intense life of a public figure. I'm talking about death threats and public scrutiny and literally a gunfight that should have cost him his life. You're going to be blown away by what an incredibly selfless leader this man is on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. This episode of Unbeatable is brought to you by the Solomon Foundation. This organization has been helping the local church by making an eternal impact at the same time that they're given an excellent return. And if this is something that you're interested in, why don't you swing over and check them out? Go to thesolomonfoundation.org. Now here's my interview with Congressman Barry Loudermilk. Congressman Loudermilk, my friend Barry, thank you for taking time out of an insane July schedule to be with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Look, there's not a lot of folks that we would stop in the middle of a legislative day for, but Jeff Strucker is one of those. So uh, wow. I'm very honored to be with you. Yeah, um, we haven't sat down and talked with each other in quite <laughs> some time. So I figured we would just catch up for a little bit at the start of this episode. How's that sound? That, that's That's awesome. Um, last time you and I were sitting down together, you were still in the Georgia state legislator, you were legislation, you were in the Senate. Um, and this is before you stepped into, uh, the U S congressional seat that you're in right now. Um, tell me a little bit about, uh, making the decision. To, well, I, actually, I want to back up a little bit, um, before we get into your political career, I want to talk about the air force. Um, because you and I have both a love for country and service to the country. So way back in the day, tell me what was it that caused you to say, hey, I think I want to join the greatest Air Force the world has ever seen. Well, that was uh, actually, it's it's unlike a lot of other stories because it was this idea of patriotism. My dad was a medic in the Army during World War II. He was in on the D-Day invasion. Um, Your stayed, dad went in on D-Day? He did. Now, in my generation, it's mostly uh, people, it's their grandfathers, but I was a latecomer. Uh, my brother and sister wow. are 15, 16 years older than me. So I was fortunate to be the son of a World War II veteran. Um, wow. And so I never heard a lot of his personal stories. Uh, you know, as you're a medic at D-Day and Battle of the Bulge, there's probably a lot of stuff that you don't want to talk about. Oh, he about, went right? through the Bulge too? Right. He was assigned to Patton's third army. He was in Holland. Oh, I have a goodness. picture of him with two little girls on the, the cobblestone street wearing, they're wearing wooden shoes and he was giving them chocolate and got a picture made. with. Hold, hold was, on just a second. Yeah. I am totally fanning out on your dad. Are you telling me he was involved in operation market garden as well? Now in that Holland. I don't know. You would think he was, um, because he was in on the second wave at D-Day. He went all the way yeah. through France. He was in Holland just before the breakout of the Battle of the Bulge. It's been difficult. You know, they don't have the rec didn't have the records back right. then that we do have now. And uh, uh, in fact, he even had some Nazi weapons he brought back, which you can't do anymore, right? Uh, yeah, right. But so we do know part of his path. Um, I didn't even know he was on the D-Day invasion until we were at the visitation of his funeral. And really? uh, my brother had uh, made a shadow box of his medals and stuff because mm -hmm. when he came back, he had them stored. They got lost in a flood. And so he went back and uh, hired a company to do the research. Well, from his badges and medals, we had a historian come in and say, your dad was in on the D-Day invasion. I said, well, I knew he went into Normandy. I said, no, you don't get that unless you're uh, this wow. particular badge, unless you were in on the invasion. Um, so we did a little more research. Uh, I do know from his pictures, he was there in Holland. He was then at the Battle of the Bulge. He was assigned to Patton's Third Army, who was going yeah, in to yeah. relieve Bastogne, which because of acts of prayer, uh, General McAuliffe was able to hold the town 
because of the, the miraculous clearing of yeah. the weather, it allowed the Army Air Corps to come in and resupply and drive the Germans back. He stayed with Patton's army on into Germany and uh, was there during part of the occupation. So um, as far as Market Garden, he told me a lot about Market Garden, but I can't confirm that he was actually there. In fact, I was I, just speaking about Operation Market Garden less than an hour ago at, at this lunch we were at. I was talking about General McAuliffe and his his yeah. refusal to surrender. And, that's right. Uh, his and, one and, word answer to, that's to right. that Nuts. surrender request. Nuts. Yeah. yeah. So, but to your original question, um, I grew up in a very con Christian, conservative, patriotic family. My dad's a World War II veteran. My brother was uh, in Vietnam. Uh, I wow. had I was living in Texas at the time. I had let I mm -hmm. when I graduated high school from Georgia, I moved to Alaska to work construction. It was just going to be a temporary thing over the summer uh, to make some money. Come back. I had an offer to play football in college, and that's what I was going to do. But I was uh, met a young girl at the church I was attending. We started doing a bus ministry together, and now we've been married for a little over 40 years. So that deterred my uh, my ambition. Yes, of course. Uh -huh. So I moved from Alaska, was working construction in Texas, actually with my wife's uh, father. He had a construction company. And I was driving home from work when I heard about the bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. Yeah, that's and right. And it infuriated me. It made me angry. And I was uh, talking to my dad on the phone, who was who, he was living in Alaska at the time. And he said something that he had told me as we were growing up. He said, if there's something in life you don't like, you've got two, two choices to make. One, accept the status quo and go on with your life. Or two, do something to change it. But complaining never accomplishes anything. He told wow. me that when I was on the phone. And I started thinking about what can I do about something that's happened overseas to my fellow countrymen? And as my wife and I were talking about, we were newly married about six months. I said, I really feel like I need to serve. And she said, well, let's go visit recruiters together. And that's really the impetus of what uh, got me uh, to join the military is I need to do something. There, there's something I can do. It may not be yeah. directly in combat. It may be, you know, back then my son, as, as you know, went uh, army and mm -hmm. was airborne and he had this thing called a contract. I'm like, there was no contract when I went in. You went in and you right. were at the mercy of where they yeah. wanted to put you. Right. Uh, but I do know God's hand was on my life from that from that point. I am totally impressed with your military family. Your father's blowing me away right now <laughs> with all of the incredible European theater events. He was basically involved in almost all of the intense fighting but I really think the world needs to hear what your dad said to you one more time. We live in a world of professional complainers. Social media right. has just given everybody the opportunity to complain, but do nothing about it. So would you say one more time to everybody who's driving and listening, and maybe they just missed that statement, what your dad told you over the phone? It's simple. If there's something in life that you don't like, you've got two choices. You can do something to change the situation or just accept the status quo and go on with your life but complaining never accomplishes anything. Yeah, that is brilliant advice. I used to tell people that served with me in the military, there are basically three types of people in the world. There are journalists who report the, the news. There are uh, the audience who watch the news. And then there's a handful of men and women who make the news and just decide, I'm not gonna live in a world like this. Right. I'm gonna go do something about it. Why don't you be part of that third category of people? So you joined the Air Force. Tell everybody what you did for uh, more than a few years in the Air Force. Yeah, I was eight years. Um, as I went in, I determined I was going to be a lifer. Um, it, it's it, and it's interesting because my heart was uh, to go in the Army or uh, your Marines. I wanted. I, yeah. I, I'm a gung ho kind of guy. I wanted the action, yep. right? But then. Mm -hmm. As my wife and I were praying about it, I realized in either one of those, and if you went the Navy or Coast Guard, there's time away from family. And I had made yeah. a commitment uh, six months earlier that uh, you know I was married. I did have a requirement to my wife. And uh, so we went and visited Air, Corps, Air Force recruiter. And uh, together we made the decision that, you know, you do get remote deployment deployments. You could be, you know, deployed into harm's way. And there was some things that I could do that, uh, you know, were a little more on the, the front line. Um, I ended up getting put into uh, my my code was, or, or my job was in communication. So I had an opportunity to yeah. train with some of the combat communications guys. In fact, one of the, my best friends ended up being in Somalia. 
um, at the at around the same time you were as the, with an Air Force Combat Comm unit. Wow! Um, but yeah. I ended up uh, being in in the intelligence arena, um, and uh-huh. so I I I worked within command and control and intelligence, helping com- to compile. Uh, intelligence from different sources as they came in to put that bigger picture together of what was going on. It was very interesting. Of course, we were, it was still the Cold War. Um, my first duty assignment was in Hawaii uh, with the headquarters of Pacific Air Forces. And so worked closely with the Navy and the Army. Of course, you have uh-huh. all three branches right there in Hawaii. And so I was always working joint service, um, doing things like, uh, you know, uh, watching the the uh, quintessential uh, Russian trawlers fishing in areas that have been fished out for years. You know, you knew what they were doing. They were spying. quote, Russian trawlers right. that are fishing, but you and I both know what they're fishing for. Exactly. And then uh, I was assigned to Elmendorf Air Force Base, Alaska uh, after that. After wow. my wife and you I went wanted from Hawaii to Alaska. Exactly. The, the interesting thing is my parents were still living there. So I had my dad, you know, there oh, that uh, nice. was good advice and everything. But uh, there we were daily intercepting Soviet bombers coming into Alaskan mm-hmm. airspace. And so there was, there was this active mission. Um, and then that's when uh, I got the SCI clearance at that point and was really embedded deeply into the intelligence arena. And uh, then after desert storm was uh, I actually got deployment orders to go to desert storm. But mm-hmm. um, just before literally, I think 24 hours before we were getting on the C-130 to go, the convoy was attacked and uh, pretty much the war was over. Um, yeah. But the reduction in force after that, because I had SEI clearance and the work I was doing, uh-huh. um, I got a job offer from a defense contractor and my wife. By then we had three kids. She's like, you know, maybe you ought to start looking in this yeah. direction, you know, right. especially after I got the deployment order. She's like, okay, this is real now. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> Uh, I went to work for a, a, a defense contractor and then eventually uh, came back to Georgia and started uh, uh, an IT services business. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me into the polit- political realm. Yeah. So I'm in a hotel room in Washington, D.C. instead of in the normal studio. You're in your office in Washington, D.C. We could probably even see each other from outside <laughs> the windows if you squinted really hard. Right. Um I really, I asked you to talk a little bit about the Air Force because I wanted to set up this lifetime of service that you have done for our country. You're not my congressman. I don't live in your congressional district, but I have the greatest respect for you as a leader. And I am thrilled that we have people like you representing us in the country. So now I just want to explain to the audience when you step into the political arena, if it's in your local area, if it's in your state, if it's at the national level, you are putting your life out there for intense scrutiny and a lot of struggles along the way. So, Barry, let's go back and talk about the conversation that you and your wife must have had. I don't even know um, when you started talking about, hey, I think I may want to run for office. How did that conversation go? Why run for office? <laughs> Well, I got involved uh, uh, in helping others campaigns. And again, it was the same thing that my dad had told me, which is if there's something in life you don't like, do something about it. And this was when there was some things happening uh, in the state of Georgia. And there was this bill that was going before the Georgia legislature. And here I am, just a small business owner struggling to Mm -hmm. get this business up and going. But I, I was seeing the impact that government was having on our freedoms on our liberties and, and ability to do business. And uh, so I started paying more attention to, uh, to politics. My wife and I were homeschooling our kids. We had started doing that when I was in the military in the, uh, in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So we continued doing that. I was seeing some, uh, threats to homeschooling, uh, coming from the legislature. But the thing that really, uh, tipped it off for me was there was a bill that was extending more powers to the government and specifically the governor in the case of a major pandemic. Okay. This was back uh-huh. in uh, 1997, 1998. And it, of course everybody says, Oh, we'll never see anything like that, this, but it was mandatory quarantining, never forced never. vaccinations, yeah. uh-huh. it's shutting down of businesses, collecting firearms. I'm like, okay, this is really offensive here. So I started 
going as a citizen lobbyist, lobbying uh, the down at the state capitol. Then I started getting involved in helping with campaigns. Uh, yeah, uh, ended up being the the chairman of the Republican Party for our small county, and then uh, there was a seat that was. Uh, held by a Democrat that uh, was a state house seat that uh, some came to me and said, we think you ought to run for the state house. Um, of course, I'm like, oh, I don't think I would do that. My wife's like, oh, I don't know if I'd ever want you to be a politician, but we committed to pray about it. And I remember sitting at a pizza restaurant one day for dinner and I got a call from one of our state house reps that I'd helped with a campaign. And he said, look, we need to know today, are you, or are you not going to run for the seat? Cause if not, we need to find someone else. And I looked at my wife and she said, I really feel that God wants you to do this. She said, I hate to say really? it, but that's what I feel like God wants you to do. Wow. So yeah. we did it. Um, served in the state house for six years, went over to the Senate again, didn't plan on running for the Senate. Now mm -hmm. in the Georgia legislature, it's part-time. So you still run your businesses. You still work. Yeah. You go down to the Capitol for about three months out of the year at, as you know, had you come down and, and speak to the Senate at one time, yeah. but after about the end of March, you're back at, at work and uh, had no intention of, of federal level. Uh, wasn't even looking at it. Um, but as the congressman I had had decided to run for Senate, it opened up the seat and I was actively out looking for someone to run because I wanted to have good representation. Yeah. When my wife yeah. came to me and she's the least likely of anyone who would want to do this. She's a very <laughs> private person. She doesn't like uh -huh. the public attention. She said, I really, really do think that this is what you're supposed to do. And, uh, so we prayed about wow. it and, and I felt like, yeah, this is what God's calling us to do. It's not yeah. necessarily what I want to do. Um, I would have to leave my business. I'd have to sell my business because, um, I'm not a, really allowed to run a business while I'm in Congress. It's yeah, a full-time yeah. gig. I mean, would be in DC a lot, but we just did a lot of prayer and felt like that truly, um, if there was anything clear in our life that this was the path we were supposed to take. And I was the unlikely candidate. There were much more well-known people and yeah. much more well-funded people in the uh -huh. race. And, uh, but you know, you submit to God's will and he'll, he'll take care of it. Well, I had the chance to meet your family a couple of times when you and I connected while you were still in the Georgia legislature. And I want to tell you, I am so impressed by your children. I'm so um, inspired by your marriage. But you just described it. There's no way to live a private life and be in public no. office at the same time. And I really wanted listeners to hear when you decide to go down this road, first of all, politics is brutal. Politics yes. in the United States is especially brutal. Um, and I've, Barry, you may be aware of this. I've had a couple of acquaintances, people that I know pretty well that have decided to step into politics mm -hmm. from business or from the military. And they, they tried to step in directly into the U.S. Senate and it did not go well for them in their <laughs> race. And I thought to myself, part of this is just following the path that Barry took. It takes a long, hard in most cases, very painful journey to move to the next level of politics. Almost never, nobody steps right in at the no. level that you're in right now. And a lot of it is just being prepared. And, and uh, I had the best piece of advice I had was from a friend who was serving on, uh, I think it was a school board at the time, but she had been involved in politics for years. And, and uh, she called and I, I she told me, she said, if you're going to run for Congress, Barry, you better be prayed up, son. And oh, that yeah. just resonated with me. So uh -huh. it is true. It is absolutely true. Well, the fact that your wife would say, I really think that you, and really what she was saying is that we should do this exactly. speaks a lot about your commitment to serve. Let's face it. You and I have been around leaders our entire lives. And I categorize categorize all leaders into two camps. There's basically the selfish leader and the selfless leader. Hmm. And it's really easy to tell which of the two the leader is when they start to get a lot of authority, a lot of responsibility, a lot of power, and some perks that go along with it. And the selfish yeah. leader always step, no matter what's coming out of their mouth, they always step into the role of leadership for what I can get out of it. Right. What I just heard you say, and you said this actually more than once in different ways, is the selfless leader steps into the role for what I can give, what I can do to help others, not what I get out of it. And to be honest, Barry, there are far more selfish leaders 
and selfless leaders. All right. So let's talk about the brutal agenda that you go through even right now in the 118th Congress, what is it like when that Congress is in session for you? Well, it's, it, it is brutal because, uh, look, I'm, I'm a guy who I have to accomplish something and it's very difficult to accomplish anything up <laughs> yeah. here, right? In you, Washington, DC, it is hard to get anything done. Exactly. And you kind of have to be a type A personality to go through what you need to go through to get elected. So you got everybody yeah. who is absolutely confident that they're right on every issue. And, and, as you described, most people want credit for it. Um, you have to set that aside. You have to be focused. As I tell people all the time, just like uh, George Washington um, it, it, throughout our, our war for independence, and even General McAuliffe, who refused to yeah. uh, surrender at Bastogne, uh, when the circumstances are against you, don't look at your circumstances. Keep your eye on your mission. And I, I summarize as like, keep your eye on your cause, not your circumstances, because most major victories have come out of the worst possible circumstances. And uh, I keep a reminder of that. Um, I, I keep pictures around things to remind me of uh, these, these basic principles. On my office wall here, I have a picture of my dad, his basic training picture from World War II. Right. I have my basic yeah. training picture. Then I have my youngest son's army basic training picture. Wow. Uh, just to remind me of the heritage. Uh, but at my home office, I have a picture of the D-Day landing that my staff gave me. And it's one that's taken from the back of a Higgins boat as the, the, yeah. the ramp is dropped yeah. and the soldiers yeah. are already in the water. And the interesting thing about it, because I'll sit and I'll stare at that picture and, um, and just think. And I know you've been through this because when yeah. we go in the military, we go through all this training and you think, what would I do in the circumstance there? And we, we know at this point, those men knew what they were walking into. They knew that it was unlikely Absolutely. that they would see the end of that day. It is unlikely yeah. most of them would even see the sand of the beach of Normandy because of the hellfire that they were walking into, mm -hmm. right? So um, what was that? I kept thinking, what was going through their mind? What is that motivating factor that's pushing them to walk right into this, this firefight that they're you know, they've got to get to the beach and up to a cliff before yeah. they can even be safe. But you only see the back of their helmets. You, there's only one of the soldiers that you see, and it's his profile because he's looking to the left and he's the last one off. So you assume he's the sergeant or, or the lieutenant, but he's looking to the left, more than likely looking for one of his soldiers. Right. None of them are. They're all looking at their mission. They're looking at their cause, not their circumstance. But then I realized that's not the question to ask. These are leaders. These are people. Um, and, and the question to ask is not what's going through their mind, but what is not going through their mind. And it's one simple answer. Yeah. What's in it for me? None of them ever thought yeah. that oh, at man. one moment because they would likely never see the freedoms and liberties that they were fighting to preserve. What they were doing was for future generations. And they understood yeah. that. And, and I think Ronald Reagan said it best. They, each one of them lost two lives that day, the life they were living and the life they would have had. And they wow. were selflessly putting their life on the line. That's hard to find these days. And yeah. so as I look at different aspects and the thing that's even sustained us being in, in Congress, because, and, and I don't know if you're aware of this, I've, I've seen more combat in Congress than I did in the Air Force. I was on the baseball shield field when a, a shooter came on. This, those types of things that, that sustain you is keep your eye on your mission. This isn't about yeah. me. And also look at this, what my dad told me. He said, look, if the enemy's shooting at you, it's because you're a threat. The enemy doesn't waste right. bullets on anybody that's something. not a threat to him. It means you're doing right. something. Yeah, I could sit here really and talk to you for the next two hours. You don't have that kind of time, not in the July stretch of the Congress, but I could talk to you for two hours about D-Day. Um, my two favorite places on earth, my family knows this, if I could spend time anywhere, the two most special spots on earth for me are Arlington National Cemetery right next to me right now and Normandy, France. I've had a chance to be there several times. I've even yeah. had a chance to lead a detachment of army rangers there for the 65th anniversary. And I remember looking at the wall and looking at a picture of some of those soldiers on the boat right before the ramp dropped in yeah. the, the uh, 
visitor center at uh, Normandy, France, looking in the eyes of those men and remembering, I think I have an idea of exactly what they were feeling before that ramp dropped. And when the ramp dropped, the the entire European war machine was pointed at them. And man, I am so inspired by what you just said. Um, But let's don't spend the whole time talking about D-Day. Let's talk about you. Um, It's fascinating. You get to the uh, U.S. Congress. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You've been there since. When did you when you when did you step into the role of U.S. Congress? January of 2015. Okay, so you step into the role and almost immediately you're in the thick of it in Washington, D.C. And by that, I mean, literally in gunfights up here. So would you describe this baseball game in 2016? Right. So we have a congressional baseball team. It's a, an annual game, one game. We, we call it the opening season, opening day and World Series all in one game. It's Republicans versus Democrats. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a fundraising event for local D.C. charities for children. And so uh, uh, it's been going on since the 1920s. And uh, when I came here, I was like, you know, I played baseball as I, I was in high school and youth baseball. This would be fun to get back out on the field. So um this was in June of 2017, uh, so this would have been uh, my third year actually playing, and it was the day before the game. Now, the game is held at the Washington National Stadium, which uh-huh. is basically like going to Truist Park or Turner Field, right? right? Yeah. And yeah. with the Jumbotron, we usually had about 10,000 people in attendance. It was really the biggest thing that happens on Washington, D.C., other than the uh, State of the Union message. Uh, generally, yeah. Capitol Hill shuts down around noon just so everybody can get ready to go to the game. And so um, this was a Wednesday, the day it was actually flag day. It was the day before the game uh, was our last practice. Really? Okay. And uh, so it was June the 7th or uh, June the 14th, 2017. We practiced at a field over in Alexandria, Virginia. It was a public uh, field there. Mm-hmm. It was like a high school level field. And so that's where we would do our practices at 630 in the morning. Generally, our last practice is pretty light, and so um, and we don't have full attendance. But this time, uh, fortunately, the the whip Steve Scalise was at the game or at the practice. The reason that's important is he's the only one that has Capitol Police protection with him. He has two yeah. uh, armed uh, plainclothes agents that travel with him, executive protection. Otherwise, there would have been no security there at all. Um, it was right near the end of practice. I've been in a batting cage. I went up to. Uh, on the field because we were doing live pitching. Now, what we would do is we have a lot of staff members that uh, you know, work uh-huh. in Republican staff and even some from the White House will come out and practice with us because a lot of them have played college ball and they're actually still physically fit, right? And they can throw at 80 miles an <laughs> right. hour. So yeah. the last thing we'd do is everybody would go up and hit. Uh, we would have our fielders, the members of Congress in the infield, had some staffers in the outfield. The rest of us are hitting. Well, I was getting ready to go up when I heard a gunshot. And um, I, where I live in Northwest Georgia, yeah, it's still pretty say, rural. You and I have been around plenty. Yeah. We know yeah, what we that hear it all like the time. Well. Yep. But I'm, I do what I do at home. I'm like, okay, what kind of gun was that? I try to figure it out just from the report. You know, what was it? It sounded right. familiar. Um, but then I realized, why am I hearing a gunshot in, yeah, in, wait a in second. the suburbs of DC? And so it came from down the third baseline. I was standing near home plate. And I thought about the Capitol Police officers who had parked their SUV right outside the uh-huh. first gate, first base side where they could look onto the field. So I looked to them because I wanted to see if they were concerned, I'd be concerned. Right. Well, when when they were exiting their SUV, they had their hands on their weapons. I'm like, OK, something's going on. Well, our third yeah. baseman happened to be at the time he was a colonel in the Army Reserves. He was a, a tank guy. Um from you know, armored guy. And so I knew uh-huh. he would know. And so he's looking out the fence and he's just staring. And then all of a sudden I hear him say, he's got a gun run. And so everyone's about that time you started to hear more shots come out. Now what had happened? I mean, we've got 20 documented miracles that happened on the field. I'd love to yeah. spend a show just talking about those, but the, the, uh, the shooter had an SKS, the Chinese style SKS. Yeah. Seven point six. Pretty high power rifle. Yep. It is. He had optics on it. He had he had shot from about thirty feet away at our third baseman. Now this guy Wait had a second. A, thirty feet with that rifle and yes. a scope. There's no way you could miss from that distance. The bullet hit one of the links in a chain link fence and deflected away from it. 
Wow. And we found the fence, uh, the, the, where the fence had been cut later. Yeah. But that gave most everybody a chance to start moving. Um, yeah. Then more shots started ringing out. Most everybody was getting in the dugout. My thought, and it goes back to my training and some other inspiration I'll share with you. But, um, and, and I, I know you know this, it, it's, it's not, to me, it wasn't the time slowed down. It's like my brain became a supercomputer and was processing everything <laughs> right. that was happening around me. Mm -hmm. I never got scared. I never, yep. I, you know, my blood pressure probably stayed low. I don't know. But as I was running up the first baseline, I'm thinking, no, do not go in the dugout. That's a site of a massacre. There's no escape route. If right. he gets on the field, everybody there is going to die. I need to make sure I'm safe to help others. So I take a longer path to go outside the field. And as I'm running, I see the ground start erupting on each side of me. I'm like, okay, this guy is shooting at me. As I turned to go out the, the wow. fence, I heard a round hit the fence post. I heard the ting. As, wow. as soon as I got out about 20 feet outside the, the gate, there was a, a uh, wooden shed that they use for storing equipment. Mm -hmm. So I started remembering what is I'm supposed to do? Well, first, get cover get or concealment. Cover. Yes. Everybody right? who's been in a firefight knows get cover. Get, get cover. something that'll stop a bullet. Right. So wooden shed may not stop a bullet, but at least it's concealment. Um, yeah. Find the aggressor. If you have a means of fighting back, fight back. If not, plan your escape route. That was just running through my mind. Mm -hmm. um, when I went around the shed, I knew I needed to go around the corner of the shed to see where he was at because he had been down the third baseline. What we found out later, I was wearing this bright yellow jersey, so I was easy to spot. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're wearing so, the jersey that's, that said, make it easy to yeah. shoot me. So he had started working his way behind the backstop. So he would have been in line up the first baseline to where I was. Now, I had wow. the capital. I was next to the shed. I then I was looking around the corner trying to see where he was. And there was one other uh, staff members with me, Brian Kelly, and never forget it. Strong believer. I think God put us both uh -huh. in that place for that moment. Um, everyone else started, was able to get away. We stayed there. Um, I was starting to go. And then I saw uh, one of the staff members, his name's Matt Micah, turn around the other side of the shed. And he walked up to the SUV and he laid down and he was covered in blood. He had actually taken a oh, round. He really? was coming off the yeah. field behind me and he took a round to the back and it came out his chest. Oh, At that man. point, all thoughts of escape left. My job now yeah. is I never leave a fellow, a comrade behind. And uh -huh. so Brian and I stayed, I started running up to try to go help Matt at that point. And, uh, Brian, the guy with me, he said, Barry, get down, get down. What I didn't see was the shooter had come around the backstop and he had lowered the rifle at me. And so, um, I dove on the ground and as I drove, I heard the bullet go right by my ear. Um, wow. and then one impacted the shed next to me and I realized, okay, this guy's still trying to shoot us. So we yeah. had to stay low. He then started trying to shoot under the SUV. And, uh, one of the things that people, uh, uh, will learn is those rounds don't dig into the dirt. They run the ground. They, that's right. They ricochet and, and keep on going. And so I, it got to the point that the bullets were going by before you would hear the report from the gun. And so I quit, uh -huh. I filtered out, I, I filtered out the actual gunshots. I don't even remember hearing those, but I would see the bullets running by. And then one of those bullets hit the ankle wow. of one of the two Capitol police officers and she went down. And so she was right there by the SUV. So we were trying to get up during all this, trying to, to help them. The other Capitol police officer, David Bailey is a true hero. Um, he mm -hmm. realized that, he, you know, this guy's got an SKS with optics. He's got 180 rounds with him. Well, it turned out Good um, gracious. the, the firefight went on for eight minutes before he was taken down. But David knew he had to draw fire away from us. The guy was there to kill Republicans. He was yeah, uh, right. Yeah. He was radicalized and he was there to kill us. So eventually, uh, Alexander police were able to come and take him out, but not before he fired well over a hundred rounds. Um, the FBI estimated not, not including what he had shot at me on the field, but just while we were behind the SUV over 20 rounds. Um, but during all that, and, and look, I'm, I'm praying through all this, but my mind is thinking, what do I need to do next? What do I need right. to do next? Well, as soon as they took down the, the shooter, I was able to run up, uh, to where Matt was and he had been laying there bleeding for eight minutes. I was surprised he was still alive. And I'm thinking, what do I need to do? I'm going through all the training. 
Do I put pressure on it? Well, what if he's got a broken rib? It could uh -huh. puncture the heart. You know, uh, quick clot. I need to find some quick clot. So I right. go up to him, and as I'm going up, I'm praying, oh, Lord, help me to know what to do when I get up mm -hmm. here. And God said, pray for him. And I was like, well, I don't even know the status of his salvation. We just know each other from the baseball field. Yeah. And, and the Lord impressed upon me to pray for his healing. And that's the first thought. I'm like, God, do you not understand? He's not going to make it. I mean, he's been laying here bleeding with a sucking right. chest wound, the proverbial sucking chest wound for, yeah. for eight minutes here. So I just laid my hand on his head and I started praying. I can't tell you the words I prayed, but it was just whatever was in, inspired for me to pray to him. And uh, Matt survived. He was the, the wow. ambulances were already there. They even got there before the police. Uh, there's some miracles with that, but he survived. Now, the, the strange thing about that is he will he's been on radio shows and talking about this as well. He uh -huh. will tell you that the prayer he heard was the Lord's prayer. But that wasn't what I prayed. But that's what he heard. And I found out uh -huh. later he had attended his first evangelical church service the Sunday uh -huh. before. And so, uh, of course, you know, as as uh, as wow. you know, uh, friends who share a foxhole are brothers for life. That's something yeah. else my dad taught me. And we are very close friends, uh, you know, from this point on. But that was just the beginning. That whole ordeal was just the beginning of a series of trials and tests that, that yeah. God was allowing me to go through. Um, and each sustained me at the next level. Uh, two, that's about two months later, we had my wife and I had a near fatal uh, auto crash. Uh, somebody slammed mm. in the back of our car on the interstate doing 110 miles an hour, turned our car sideways, wow. and we flipped multiple times down the interstate. We were doing about 60. Um, Hmm. Neither one of us should have survived. The car ended up on its side when they pulled us out. They took us to the to the hospital. My wife had a fractured sternum. I had uh, some uh, back neck injuries, some contusions. Uh -huh. But neither one of us should have lived through that. Everyone's amazed that we were still alive. But I knew God's protection was upon us. Uh, FBI investigated that as a potential uh, purposeful incident because of the way the crash yeah. happened. They never right. were able to yeah. determine anything. But two weeks after that, an assassin took a shot at us at home as we were driving into the George, North Georgia mountains just to get away. We were recuperating from the car wreck. What? When my wife hears something hit the back of the car, turns out there's an AR round embedded in the bumper of the car that when the FBI came to investigate, the trajectory was, and it, and it had the, the markings that it was subsonic and there was a suppress, you know, suppressor on it. Oh yeah, yeah. So they categorized as an assassination attempt. They were 99% sure that they were they were trying to shoot the driver of the vehicle, which was me. Um, but they uh -huh. just couldn't figure out how would they know we were going because we really didn't tell anybody. Well, we found out later that someone had hacked into my wife's phone and was tracking us on Google Maps. And so they felt this was a professional wow. uh, operation. So here we yeah. are now. You know, the baseball shooting. That was somebody shooting at me because I was a Republican. I was associated with a group. This one was personal. Yeah. This one was after yeah. me. Um, and that really had an impact uh, on us. And then you know, I could go on with other things. But uh, two months after that, three months after that, we were involved in a train crash the, with a derailment, hit a garbage truck. People quit traveling with us. I didn't understand that. But <laughs> I was going to say, say, we have a term in the Army, uh, my buddies did, and we called people like you bullet magnets. We said, yeah. <laughs> stay away from Barry because Barry tends to get shot at too much. He's a bullet magnet. Well, after God took me through all those, and, and uh, you know, you really dive into the scriptures there. And I started reading where, you know, in Romans where God says, take yeah. joy in your tribulations because right. that is going to give you experience and fortitude and build your faith. Because I... I would hit things that would have just devastated me after the baseball shooting. But I think back and I say, you know, God brought me through that. He'll bring me through yeah. this. And each thing yeah. goes through. And so we had all these threats on our life. Um, but the one thing I hadn't gotten to the level of what, which we did was a blessing where the scripture says you are blessed when they, uh, make Revile false, yeah. false mm -hmm. allegations against you, then that was the next major thing to happen, which kind of it happened uh, after the January 6th events. Um, there was false accusations that I gave reconnaissance tours to people. There's yeah. nothing more than people visiting my office from, from right. Georgia. But it was a great narrative. So we ended up getting over 200 death threats in the next week. But now there was this other aspect of it is, look, Jesus went through worse than all of this. And uh -huh. he, I was, and I, it's hard to say this, but I feel 
fortunate that God allowed me to go through these things to build that faith and, uh, you know, to continue to do his work. Well, I was about to bring this up a little bit later in the show, but this is a good time to talk about it now. Um, this episode uh, with you at the baseball game, it sounds like another chapter of a great book. And then <laughs> you prayed or and then they prayed. Yeah. Last time you and I were sitting down and having a meal, um, you were just about to release a book. And I would love the audience to hear a little bit about why you would go through the hard work of writing a book while you're in the Georgia State Senate and you have a full-time job. But um, tell everybody what was important about this book. And then they prayed. Well, it's there's so many times in American history that God divinely intervened. And, what's, and he still does it today. But the difference that I started saying is, uh, our leaders were ready to recognize the divine intervention throughout our history. And they documented it and they talked about it. Today, you're almost condemned if you yeah. if you try to bring God Absolutely. into anything. Yeah. And so there were so many stories that some my dad told me that I started doing research. And I ended up doing 10 years of research before I even started writing this book. But it was 13 stories through American history from Valley Forge all the way up into the Apollo 8 uh, space mission. Mm -hmm that God intervened um, and those that were there fully acknowledged God, yeah. giving God credit for his divine intervention that changed the course of American history. But it also had a drastic impact on the leadership of those leaders yeah. that were there. And uh, General McAuliffe, it was talked about with uh, Bastone, he was one of those in the book. Um, yeah. uh, Patton, George Patton with his prayer card um, mm -hmm. that he sent out to the entire, every member of the third army, uh, with an order to have every man in the army praying for good weather for battle, right? That was what was the turning right. point for the, for the soldiers at Bastogne. So, uh, the, the prayer at Valley Forge turning point in the, yeah. in our, uh, in our nation's history during the war for independence. And there was just so many of them, several from world war II, even the civil war, uh, the yeah. prisoners at Andersonville who had a, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a Christian there who started leading prayers because they were dying of thirst and a lightning bolt comes in the middle of a storm, strikes in the middle of the, the prison camp and starts a spring, right? Providence a spring. spring in the middle yeah. of the, the most unlikely place. Yep. Exactly. And so our history is full of these moments of divine intervention. And it, it, and my mind always goes back to that last line of the declaration of independence, because when you think about these, these men, who believe they were following God, um, yeah. they knew what they were doing by declaring our independence from England was declaring war on the most powerful military force yeah. in the history of the yeah. world. I mean, this would be like the island of Grenada declaring war against the United States, right? It's, yeah. it's, right. It, it, it's a non-win situation. Right. But that last line of the declaration uh, it shows us what they believed. And it says, and in support of this de declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine uh -huh. providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And our sacred honor, yep. And, and uh, years later, Tom, you know, Thomas Jefferson penned that. He was asked what was the inspiration for that? Because a lot of his, his a lot of the declaration was inspired from different uh, politicians from the past mm -hmm. and legal scholars. And there was John Locke and Sir William Blackstone. But he said that one was actually came from the book of Daniel. And it was the story of the three Hebrew children. As you know, wow. that they, they, if they yeah. didn't bow to the king and pray to the king, they were going to be burned to and death in a furnace. And uh, yep. they were given one more chance. And their response was, uh, we believe God will protect us. But if not, we still won't bow. And he said that was the inspiration is that we believe in the protection of divine providence, but we're still willing to give everything we have and we own yeah. for this idea of liberty. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell people at the end of this episode how they can get a copy of your book. And then they prayed. Um, but for just a few minutes, I want you to answer a question that friends of mine all over the world asked. So a few years ago, and you're right in the thick of this right now, my friends started texting me, they started messaging me, they started emailing me and even calling me and saying, is what I'm watching on the news in my country really happening in the Capitol building of the United States, January 6th? Um, you have the unfortunate responsibility, and I'm using this phrase, nobody else, of 
looking into the committee and the report from the January 6th attacks on the Capitol building. I'm not asking you to give any insider information here, but just the hard work of what you're doing right now, because the whole world literally held their breath while this was happening, um, not just people in the United States. So can you just describe a little bit of some of the difficult mission, uh, the difficult mission of looking into this, uh, you know, the, the committee report. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, it, it is difficult one, because I was a victim of, uh, the, the other select very partisan committee, um, as they made false accusations. And one of the things we found out very early on now, when, uh, the speaker appointed me chairman of the special subcommittee, um, he had told me, he said, I want you to also expose what they did to you. Because and one of the reasons he said he, he chose me is because I more than anybody else, I had the experience of what their false accusations would do. And so my mission is to get to the truth of what really happened, um, not a political narrative. Um, there are some things that they uncovered that were, were true, but there's a lot of other things that were false. But we found out that as they were investigating, they've been investigating me for quite some time. They even subpoenaed two of the people from uh, that, uh, some of the people that, that came that day I'd met at church. Um, they subpoenaed them and they have found out a full month before they made the accusation that there was nothing to it. They had all the evidence that it was false. They still made the accusation. Then we had, I asked the Capitol Police, will you look at the same video evidence that they're claiming I gave tours of the Capitol, which we did not. All I did, they met in my office. Um, which anybody that's constituent can come to my office. Uh, the office buildings were open due to COVID. The Capitol itself wasn't closed, um, but we met in my office. I took them to lunch because most of the cafeterias or, or restaurants in DC were closed. So our cafeterias here in the house office buildings were open. I took them to lunch there, uh, showed them a couple of the little display areas in the basement of the, uh, uh, of the Capitol office buildings. Then they left. That was all. It was just a constituent visit. But because they were seen on video cameras in hallways, which there were, you know, it's there were lots of visitors here because this is the beginning of a new new Congress, right? Um, I don't know why they selected me out of all this, but uh, we asked the Capitol Police to look at the same video footage and make an assessment. And they came back and said there was nothing to it, nothing suspicious. We didn't go near the Capitol. There was nothing unusual about it whatsoever. And that caused that committee to double down on their accusations uh, to the point where my wife and I actually had to have police escort to and from the airport uh, from here. But um, one of the so we, we uncovered that that was purely politically motivated. But the fact is, the Capitol was attacked. There were bad people who did some very bad things. There were there was a lot of violence here. So what we've been uncovering, and, and I tell my team to do this, it's, it's basically apologetics, all right? I learned this in the military, and I've learned this, you know, doing studying the scriptures. If you try to prove a theory correct, you will prove it correct every time because you will dismiss any information to the contrary. But if you try to prove your theory false and you can't, then you found the truth. I mean, it's basic apologetics. We're taking that approach. We're taking every you know theory that's out there. I've got access now. Part of this committee, as I obtained supposedly all the documents the January 6th committee was able to get. I got 44,000 hours of surveillance video that we're going through. I've got 2 million printed pages of depositions and subpoenas. But we're also finding out there's certain information we don't have. And apparently it wasn't preserved by the committee. Something we don't have is any information about their blue team. Now, they broke up the, the January 6th select committee into, into teams, and the blue team's responsibility was to investigate how did these people get in, regardless of who they were? What was the security failure? We don't have anything from that, but we do know that they did a lot of work. So the question is, why don't we have any of that? Well, that requires investigating the, the Capitol Police, but more so the committee on house administration in the house and committees in the Senate, because they're responsible for overseeing this and house leadership. So anyhow, we're spending a lot of time uh, working on, on every, you know, a lot of theories that people had, we've proven, Oh, there's a reason that this happened. But one that's broken recently is we've been getting a lot of videos that people will say, Oh, this is an undercover agent who's encouraging people to go into the Capitol, et cetera. So, 
was provided by an attorney a particular video. And this is just one instance of things we've, we've uncovered, which just leads to something else to investigate. Uh, he claims this was a Metropolitan Police officer. And he's literally encouraging people to go into Capitol. He's even helping them climb the scaffolding and, and everything. Well, the first thing I look at is, why do you think that's a Metropolitan Police officer? I mean, you can't tell. He's wearing a GoPro, right? All we got is GoPro footage. And so they kept being adamant that this is a uh, undercover officer. So I was like, okay, well, we will write a letter to the Metropolitan Police and ask them to provide us all their body cam footage because I need that anyhow because, because of privacy laws and stuff, Capitol Police do not have body cams. Um, they, uh, and so all we have surveillance footage that has no audio, but if I can get Metropolitan Police because they were brought in to help, then we would at least have audio and we can have ground perspective of things. Well, part of what they gave us was some GoPro video footage from their electronic surveillance unit. And guess what was in there? The video, same video I was given of someone who they verified was a, a Metropolitan Police officer was assisting people climbing scaffolding and encouraging them to go into the Capitol. Right. So now that opens up another door. Why? What, what was going on? You know? And so, um, there's, there's so many things, but the, the biggest thing we're looking at was the security failure, which we do know there was plenty of intelligence leading up to it, that there were extremist groups that planned to attack the Capitol. Their op plan, we have it was, it included they may have to kill some of the palace guards, as they called them, which was were Capitol Police. They would go into the Capitol. They would take hostage anyone wearing a congressional pin. Um, they would establish themselves as the Third Continental Congress. And then they would probably vote to appoint Trump president or whatever. But that was their plan. Um, that intelligence was known by most of the three-letter agencies. It was given to the Capitol Police but that intelligence was suppressed. It never went any further. The chief of police didn't even know of that intelligence two days before the attack. So our focus on our investigation is this security failure. Was it just incompetence and then this big cover-up? Was it, was it purposely suppressed for political gain? That's kind of where we are right now. In fact, I've got another meeting this afternoon with our, our team that's been working day and night on this uh, for the last three months. But our objective is, You've got to know where your failure was or you'll just repeat the same thing. And so we've got to know where the failure is. We do have to hold people accountable. There is no reason in the world that the, the, the people's house, that, that the most powerful legislative body in the history of the world meets on a daily basis should ever fall to uh, an aggressive force, whether it's civilian or military. That should never happen. Barry, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the death threats, many dozens or hundreds of death threats right. that you've had. I'm thinking about your family and the intense scrutiny of every part of your private life and your family's life that you've gone through. I'm thinking about the bullets around you at the baseball game and the assassination attempt on your life. And now I'm hearing the hard, unenviable task that you have of trying to figure out what went wrong and why was it even possible that that Capitol building could be stormed like this so that it doesn't happen again. And I am reminding myself of how desperately we need good men and women in positions of leadership that will do the right thing no matter how much it costs them personally. And although I'm not in your district and I can't vote for you or help you get reelected, I just wanna tell you thank you for doing all that you've done to preserve the freedoms of our country and also also just to make our country more secure and uh, a better beacon of hope for the rest of the world. Thank you for who you well, are Jeff. as a man. Thank you for what you stand for. Well, thank you so much. And look, it is when you follow God's purpose in your life, he puts people in your life to prepare you. And, and I've got to give credit where credit due is you were one of those that, you know, we oh, met man. at a, at something you were speaking at. Yeah. Um, I immediately felt this, this camaraderie with you. I mean, there's been I movies the made about you, you and yeah. all this. And I'm just like, okay, this is somebody I can connect with. I mean, he's, he's really a true hero. Um, and I could tell that because you didn't seek glory or fame for what you did. You did what you did for the same reason that, you know, my dad and others did. Mm -hmm. But I could sense that about you. And you also knew the providence that was there with you. And 
some of the preparation, um, and, and I showed you this earlier, was this right here. You know, you, you yeah, signed this book, book for me, the book of that? your story. That was one of the things that I could relate to on the baseball field that day. Because yeah. I even just picked it up this morning off the bookshelf and, and I was thumbing through it. And I'm like, I relate to this now more than before, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. as you described, the sound of the bullets going right by your head. I know what that sounds like. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to compare what you went through. I mean, it, it, because yours lasted much longer than eight minutes and you kept going <laughs> back in. But the, it, the one thing that it reminded me of is my chief of staff was there at the field that day. Yeah. He was in, the, in his car in the parking lot when this all started. And of course he's in a position where he, he can't get to where I'm at. Um, but what he saw was that when I ran off the field, instead of running to safety, I ran yeah. to the gunfire. And, and when he got to me, me in this episode at all, yep. he, he chastised me when he finally was able to get to me. He's like, <laughs> he why said, did hey, you boss, run to the gunfire? Right. Yeah. And, but what he couldn't see, was where Matt Micah had been shot and he had yeah. fallen and I was trying to get to him. And right. that's as as I read this, it's it's and it and it could be in reality of what you went through. You ran back into the gunfire over and over and over again. Or running into the gunfire with a domestic terrorist or just yeah. running into the political gunfire that you right. know you you may not see a way of winning and the circumstances are against you. This is what God's looking for in his leaders of today. And he yeah. puts people in place to prepare. I was not prepared for that. I don't think I would have been as, as near as prepared for the battle on the baseball field if I had not met you and read your book. Um, and, and like, look, this is a guy who's been through it. And not only did he come out, he came out stronger. I mean, yeah. you could, you come back, you, you, one of the, you won best ranger competition, right? Uh-huh. You go to seminary. Yeah. I'm like, people don't leave the army after they, right. they go to, to win best ranger competition. You go back as a chaplain, but what level of respect did you get of, you know, here being a chaplain yeah. with a combat infantry badge jumping with these guys? Yeah. I mean, the impact that you've had on people is just like, it, it's unbelievable. And I, and my, you know, admiration of you is, is, is just as high as it was in the first time we met. And I appreciate what you do. Well, the feeling is absolutely mutual. And I just want to say on behalf of the entire unbeatable army, the audience that's listening, thank you. You have an intense schedule getting ready to go into the recess. <laughs> so thanks for giving me an hour of your time during this crazy season my pleasure. of your life. Thanks for all you stand for, Barry. And I'm all right. proud of you. Well, it, it, you as well. And thank you for having me. And anytime, anytime I can do anything to help, please let me know. All right. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I had hoped to be able to sit down and have this conversation with Congressman Loudermilk face to face. But for those of you who are driving and listening to this episode, for those of you who are watching it on YouTube, I hope you didn't miss this powerful statement that his father said to him after that terrible attack of the U.S. Marines in Beirut, Lebanon. His father said, you have two choices, Barry. You can complain about it, which does nothing, or you can go do something about it. And that's basically where we all find ourselves when life becomes unbearable. You can stay knocked down. You can complain about it being unfair, or you can dust yourself off you can get back up and you can be unbeatable. You can decide that you're going to do something about what's happening to you, or in Barry's case, what's happening to people around you. Barry also gave this brilliant piece of advice, and I am going to take his advice personally, and I hope you will this week as well. He said that when life is really, really tough and when everything is really bad, Keep your eye on the mission. Don't look at what's happening to you. Don't look at what's happening around you. Put your focus on your mission and what's important and everything else will just fade away like he did at that baseball game back in 2016. I wanna say thank you to all of the people that stay connected with this podcast on your favorite social media channels. There's a lot of really amazing people that are engaging with us on social media. And if you're not part of our social media uh, family, why don't you get connected with us? Just look for us with the um, handle at Unbeatable Podcast on pretty much any social media platform. 
and you're going to find some amazing people there. Like our fan of the week this week, Julia Swain. Julia, we just wanted you to know that we know that you're awesome and we want you to know we know you're awesome, but we want other people to know you're awesome too, Julia. Hey, if you stumbled across this episode and you were really blown away by it and you just found this podcast for the first time, go ahead and subscribe. Subscribe to the video on YouTube or subscribe to the audio on all of your, on your favorite podcast platform. I just want to say thank you. And one of the ways that I want to thank you is to just give you a free resource that will help you when life is down. I developed this guidebook. I call it the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And it's a PDF download and it's totally free. I will give it to you. All you got to do to get it is just go to unbeatablearmy.com. My hope is that this guide will give you some motivation when life gets tough. Thank you for joining me this week. I can't wait to bring you another amazing guest next week. See you guys next time on Unbeatable. 